Good morning. My name is Brian Hoover. I'll be the scripture reader today. We're going to be looking back into Exodus in chapter 19, starting at verse 16. If you're using the Bible in the pew, that's on page 56, or you can follow along on the screen. So we're looking at Exodus 19, verse 16 through 21, chapter 20, verse 21. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called to Moses, to the, called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. Also, let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses came, and Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder, and the flashes of lightning, and the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us, and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear. For God has come to test you, that the fear of him 
may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. This is God's word. Amen. Well, for the last 10 weeks, we've showed video testimonies where someone from our church was speaking about the commandment before the sermon. And those videos poured blessings into our church in a thousand ways. I'm thankful for everyone who participated in, in being filmed in those and especially thankful for Glenn, one of the members of our church who, who put all of those together. It was no small undertaking to do all of that. But I'm also thankful to be back to our normal practice of reading the Word of God before the preaching of the Word of God. Just as a heads up, I'll mention that next week we're going to leave our study in Exodus and for the time leading up and to and through Easter, we're going to be in Psalm 23. And then we'll go back to the book of Exodus and finish it before the summer. And whenever we get closer to the summer, then I'll tell you what we're doing then. At the end of the sermon... Last week, Noah, as he was preaching, asked this question. What is your response when you're met with the law of God? What is your response when you're met with the law of God? So that's his question for us this morning. And so let's pray about it before we begin. Would you pray? Heavenly Father, we were taught by your Son, to pray, hallowed be your name. Which is to say that we should pray that your name should be held in reverence and awe. That there should, in the right ways, be an appropriate fear. That changes how we live. Lord, I pray this morning that the gathering of your people, the the singing of songs, the praying of prayers, the preaching of your word would be a means to that end, knowing you rightly. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. We often plan our preaching schedule something like six to nine months in advance. And originally we didn't plan this sermon. We... Planned, of course, for this Sunday, but we didn't plan for this passage and this sermon. I was out of the office the other day, and when I came back in, the guys told me they had created and assigned me a sermon, (laughs) an epilogue sermon, to finish up the Ten Commandments. That's not exactly what happened. That's pretty much what happened. Um, And they were right to do so. We need to encapsulate what we've learned and what we need to do going forward. But more than just that, I will say this. Exodus 20 itself has its own epilogue there within the text for us to reckon with. So we added an epilogue sermon. Epilogue is just a fancy word for a conclusion Epilogues are typically short and often contain a more personal address from from the author to the readers, or in this case, the listeners. So how, as I've asked, must we respond to God's law? 
Our aim in spending 10 weeks on God's law was to prevent a tragedy. The tragedy of becoming people who know about God but don't know God. The tragedy of putting our knowing into a compartment called Sunday mornings. I'll say it differently. The tragic temptation for believers is to walk into the promised land with a swagger. Earlier in the service, Nazar, as he was leading, he he led us through this confession of sin written by King David. After a tragic season in King David's life where he put God in a compartment and he walked with a swagger. I want to explain more about that moment in King David's life and how it relates to our passage this morning. But to do that, we need to back up. So so back up with me. We've said several times, and Noah said it explicitly last week, that as we're studying the Ten Commandments, mostly they come to us in very short, kind of, I would say, pithy statements. They're, They're very short. And they're... Cast in the negative, thou shall not, or you do not do this. But what we saw over and over again is that that short statement of not doing something actually implied a a wealth of positive applications for us than how to live more positively, all the things we should be doing, even as we avoid the things we should not be doing. That's how the commandments work. So you shall not commit adultery not only means you should not share intimacy with someone who's not your spouse, but it it gives us over to a life of cherishing marriage and specifically if you have a spouse, cherishing your spouse and then upholding more broadly the dignity of marriage. You shall not murder not only requires that you do not unlawfully take life, but that we value human life and cherish it. We see this principle in the next three chapters of an Exodus, maybe even four. The rest of chapter 20, 21, 22, 23, and in some ways 24, we see that how the few words of the commandments cast in the negative are then pressed out into the life of Israel in more positive, robust application. So for example, Exodus 20 verse 13 says, you shall not murder. Four words in English, two in Hebrew. And just a few pages later in chapter 21, we read that if you have an animal that's accustomed, is the word that's used, accustomed to hurting people, you have to kill the animal and you're held responsible. Which is this application of you shall not murder pressed out into the life of Israel. We don't have animals. We have similar laws with dogs mostly today. That's one way God's people take a robust view of life and see its value. Here's another from the same chapter, chapter 21. says that if two men are fighting and if they should happen to hit a woman who's pregnant and the child in her womb dies, then there's consequences to that related to the commandment about murder. Because that child in a womb, the text is implying, is a fellow image bearer with God and has dignity, value, and worth. And so, in other words, you shall not murder has all sorts of applications including perhaps this very obscure case when two men are fighting and hit a pregnant woman accidentally. The Eighth Commandment says you shall not steal, and then just a few pages later, there's a section on slavery where God says, quote, 
Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of the stolen person shall be put to death. Exodus 21.16. In other words, the kind of slavery our country practiced for several hundred years is explicitly condemned in the Old Testament and, for that matter, the New in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10. Again, just a few words, thou shalt not steal, but all these implications to the life of Israel, particularly in their context, surrounded by other nations, doing differently. Speaking of the eighth commandment on stealing, I, I want you to look at one specific place with me. So if you have a Bible still open, flip to page, or I should say chapter 22. Chapter 22, the first verse. So we've been saying, okay, small commands, Teased out, big meanings. 22 verse 1 says this. If a man steals an ox or a sheep, we read, and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox. And what's the number there? Four for a sheep. Steal a sheep, you pay for Okay. Yeah, where, where, big deal. Where, where are you going, Benjamin? Steal a sheep, then you owe four, so what? You might not see yet what that has to do with King David, who lived 400 years after Exodus 22, or what that verse about sheep and four has to do with knowing the real God, not putting him down into a compartment, or what this verse about stealing sheep has to do with preventing a tragedy of believers walking to the promised land with a swagger. might not be clear to you. In fact, I expect it's not. So let me make it clear. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, so 400 years after this, it begins this way. It says that at the time that kings went out to war, David didn't. He stayed at home. And he sent his general instead. And at home he saw another man's wife. He stole her, killed her husband, And then in the next chapter, God sends a prophet named Nathan to go talk to David. And Nathan tells David a story. There were two men in a certain city, Nathan begins. One rich, the other poor. Nathan continues his story. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little you lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of the morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. It was like a daughter to him, Nathan says. Now there came a traveler to the rich man and he was unwilling, the rich man that is, was unwilling to take one flock one from his own flock or herd to prepare for the guests who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb And prepared it for the man who had come to him. End of story. How's David going to respond? David, text says he, he grows angry. And he yells back. As the Lord lives, the man who does this deserves to die. Quote, he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he has done this thing. He had no pity. Hmm. 
Man stole a lamb. David yells out, four lambs he'll pay, citing Exodus 22, verse 1. How's Nathan going to respond? Some of you know. You're the man. And then what Nathan does next, less familiar perhaps, is he goes from that statement, you're the man, to then he walks through the Ten Commandments that David explicitly broke in that season with Uriah and Bathsheba. And out of that exchange, both the telling of the story and the preaching of the Ten Commandments to David and his particular violations of them, God broke into the hardness of David's heart. And God cut the swagger out of David's life, leading him to write the prayer of confession that we all played a moment ago together that we call Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from your iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. So what's your response when you're met with the law of God? That's, that's the question. It's possible, I think, just drawing from this life of David, to, to, to be so focused on, I know this one thing, and to miss everything else. David wasn't wrong when he said what he said, and he was so wrong. What's our response when we're met with the law of God? That's our question after 10 weeks with the law of God. God means for you to repent of any part of your life that has an angry, arrogant swagger on the way to the promised land. The law of God, indeed the knowledge of God himself as expressed in the law, should leave us each undone in a good way. Just think of what all the commandments require. And Scott so helpfully already walked it it through in his prayer, but just to highlight it again, the first commandment requires us that we love God first and most in our lives, having no gods before him. The second commandment means that we can't take the real God and change him. The third commandment means that if we take the real God the way he is, which is the only way he can be taken, we have to let him change us and not take his name to ourselves in vain. The fourth commandment speaks, yes, of resting one day in seven, but it speaks of us having a trust that God will provide the things we need, moment by moment, day by day. The fifth commandment about honor in the home really is in a bigger way about a society among believers that has honor and dignity, civility. The sixth commandment prohibits murder, but it says to us that if we have hateful thoughts in our hearts, we need to forsake them. The seventh commandment requires marriage be pure, but it requires that our hearts and thoughts be pure as well. And on and on the commandments go, word after word, week after week, law after law, to the point that I would say that there's not a person here who if instead of a sermon manuscript, I had a transcript of your thoughts from all of last week, none of you want me to read that, myself included. In our study, we've asked and we have answered several times through the fall and in the Ten Commandments series why the commandments don't come in chapter 1. We've asked and answered several times why the commandments don't come in chapter 1. 
They don't come in chapter 1 because God doesn't look at you in your sin and say, you're enslaved to sin, but if you just try harder, I'll save you to myself. That's why they don't come in chapter 1. But we haven't asked and answered, I don't think yet, effectively, why they come in chapter 20. Why do they come in chapter 20? To take away our swagger. Everything God does in the book of Exodus is so that you would recognize that God is God. We've called it over and over again the recognition formula. Then you will know, God says. All of the events in Exodus, from the baby in a basket floated down the river to the fiery bush that does not burn, to Moses and the plagues and the angel of death that passes over the the houses that put the lamb's blood on their doorposts, to the exodus from Egypt, to the parting of the Red Sea, to the closing of the Red Sea, to the food on the ground called manna, to the pillar of fire, to the giving of the law, to the building of all that will be built later in the book for the God who is who he is, is all done so that the people would know God is God. Again, the commandments come here in chapter 20 so that no believer would walk into the promised land with a swagger. God has already saved Israel. We would say it this way, perhaps, they've already become Christians. In chapter 19, earlier than what Brian read earlier, 4, 5, 6, there's extraordinary gospel promises. God reminds them of how he bore them on eagles' wings and brought them to himself. That's the gospel. God tells Israel that though all the world is his, Israel will be his treasured possession, verse 5, and that they are to be to him a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, verse 6. What blessings, what confidence they must have had that God was for them, not against them. It's so good for you to know that God loves you. Knowing God loves you will change your life. And then at the base of a mountain called Sinai, in the middle of the wilderness, the the Israelites look up. And they see a mountain on fire with smoke and lightning and thunder. And they hear God's voice to call Moses up. And Moses goes up and God says, go back down and remind them, don't come up. But by the time God gives the law, they don't want to come up. There's no danger in them coming up. Look again at what I'll call our passage, 18 to 21 in verse, chapter, excuse me, chapter 20. So Exodus chapter 20, the epilogue to the Ten Commandments, beginning in verse 18. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpets and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and they said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. It's like a Black Friday shopping event at Target where at first everyone's just trying to rush in and they want the TV and they want, they like, they, they're, they're gonna, it's going to be dangerous at how close they get and crowd in. And then a gun goes off in the store and They're gone. They're terrified. We don't want nothing to do with that, they tell Moses. You, Moses, you be our mediator before God because there's a holiness that God requires of us that is beyond anything we could have ever imagined. 
Look how Moses responds in verse 20. Moses agrees, and he doesn't agree at the same time. He says, do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. That's a strange response. That's a strange response. He seems to be saying two things at once, because he is. The fear you have, this debilitating fear, this paralyzing fear, this fear of fire and smoke and lightning is not the kind of fear that's meant to last, he's saying. This terrible, debilitating fear serves a temporary good if it leads you to a kind of humility before God that causes you to know him as he really is. The law of God, all the thunder and all the fire and all the smoke helps us remember that we need a savior. All the weight And holiness of God, knowing him as he really is, keeps us remembering what should not be forgotten as we walk to the promised land. Years ago, I met a guy named Barry. And Barry told me a story. The story goes like this. When Barry was 16, he and his buddy lived in a place like this, central Pennsylvania. I never knew this happened, but... Now that I live here, it does. In the fall, many houses, at least in many neighborhoods, rake their leaves to the edge of the yard, and then this machine comes by, and they just vacuum up the leaves. It's very strange to me. Um, but, but now I've lived here for eight years, and I, I think this, this is every fall. You, you rake your leaves, and it comes by. So Barry was describing to, this to me. Uh, this is the sort of place he lived, and when Barry was 16... He had the blessing of a new sports car. And they went tearing through the neighborhood, him and his buddy. Through the curb, like, not the curb, but the edge, and just tearing through these leaf piles, just having a blast. And they come to a corner, and they look down the corner, and they see the mother of all leaf piles. And his buddy yells, get it. Barry turns the corner, steps on the gas, they're blaring towards the leaf pile. And as they're getting to the leaf pile, just out of the corner of his eye, Barry sees the storm door open up and a woman walking out, which is enough time for him to pause, take his foot off the gas pedal, which is enough time for him to pause and see a child stand up in the leaf pile, which is enough time for him to pause and swerve out of the way. Drives turns the corner, puts the car in park, turns it off, and weeps over what was almost happened, but by the grace of God did not. A kind of holy terror overwhelms him, and he's undone. And when the initial terror fades away, what remains, I would say, is a different kind of fear. An abiding fear, a healthy fear, we might say. One that keeps a 16-year-old grounded. There'll be no more driving with a swagger for the rest of his life. From time to time, our pastor elders dedicate a season to thinking and praying 
about what mission God might be calling our church to in the coming years. And some time ago, one evening, we were sitting together doing this and discussing what passions God had laid on our heart. And we went around, and one of our volunteer pastors said he something that we felt compelled to write down, and it became part of our goals and our staff documents that we use. And this elder said that he wanted our church to become a place where, quote, we would speak like we remember what it was like before God saved us. Which sounds very similar to what God tells Israel after the Ten Commandments. I haven't read this one yet, but 22.16, we read, God says to Israel, you shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in Egypt. Don't treat the foreigner badly because you were foreigner. We might paraphrase this to say God wants us, his people, to speak and act like we remember what it was like before God saved us. Or maybe we'd say that God wants me and you to respond to the law of God by seeing our need for forgiveness in Jesus and finding that forgiveness in Jesus. All the smoke, all the fire, all the thunder of God's holy law came crashing down on the Christ. Jesus, as we read in the New Testament, drank the cup of God's wrath so that there's nothing left for you if you're in Christ. It's good news. And so if you see your need for a Savior, and you know how wonderful a Savior Jesus is, you spend the rest of your lives not walking with a swagger to the promised land, but walking to the promised land. Let's pray and invite the worship team to come back and lead us in a song. Heavenly Father, we know so little of what it means to pray, hallowed be your name, even when we know what the word means. We know so little of the experience. And so, Lord, I pray this morning, again, through the the gathering of your people, through the prayers that are prayed, through the songs that are sung, through the word that is preached, you would open our hearts wide to all that you are for us. Yes, in your holiness, but yes, in your grace and your mercy and your forgiveness and your promise. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.